episode 24 of the Water Break podcast. Here is your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the lead and copper rule revisions, or LCRR, with 120 Water. Our guests today are Marcus Hagberg and Lowell Huffman from 120 Water. Marcus, who is an account manager with 120 Water, has spent the last 10 years working as a consultant and project program manager for technology startups, nonprofits, and educational institutions in the urban resilience, economic development, and technology spheres. He earned a Master's of Science and Development economics from the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, and a Bachelor of Arts from Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome, Marcus. Welcome. Great to be here. And Lowell Huffman serves as the Director of Strategic Partnerships for 120 Water. Lowell is responsible for collaborating and building strategic partnerships with EPC firms, association, product manufacturers like Hot, Xylem, Brita, and more to strengthen the value chain and bring innovative solutions to utilities, for water quality programs like LCR. He's working with many state associations to bring LCR education to the forefront in an effort to help utilities get ahead of the challenges with the new LCR revisions. Welcome, Lowell. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Now, because we're going to be talking about the U.S. EPA revisions to the lead and copper rule, that which were effective December 16th, 2021, We're going to remind everyone that it's important to remember that state primacy agencies will ultimately enforce this law. So it's imperative that you as a utility leader talk and consult with your state and local officials regarding compliance planning. And 120 Water and Probiotic Solutions will discuss trends and make some recommendations for systems as you think about your plans to tackle the challenges presented with these revisions. I am very excited to have both of you on the podcast because I've wanted to cover LCRR for a while. As an engineer, I watched Flint, Michigan unfold, and I think it really taught us a lot about the impact on communities. What are some of the health issues you two are seeing leading to lead and copper in our water? Well, I think just out of the gate, lead as a neurotoxin, there's no safe level of lead for human consumption. We have really understood that since 1986, when the federal government banned the use of this as a mechanism of conveying water, or even if you look back to when we began getting lead out of gasoline and mm-hmm. and paint and stuff in the 70s, just noticed that this is terrible for human consumption, but mostly it does affect children with a soft blood brain barrier and those sort of things. So for the most part, it's we're here finally tackling once and for all this thing that has been laying dormant in our country for a number of years. It's actually made me a little nervous. I'm like, um, what are my house connections? <laughs> in my system. And Marcus, I heard a rumor that you had read this entire legislation. That's like 400 plus pages. Yes, actually, I and a team of kind of policy wonks, folks here at 120 Water who have backgrounds being operators working for primacy agencies in the past, have an interest in water policy. It was a watershed year last year in the water industry to be, to put it, uh, to use a pun, right? Yeah. And um there was just so much activity going on. So we actually got together, read through line by line, every single piece. I really appreciated the methodology that the uh, legislation laid out in terms of how that EPA arrived at the ultimate ruling. Now, as, as you mentioned earlier, the effective date, it was December 16th, 2021. There was a big delta, almost a year between when the rule was initially released in December, 2020, and when it actually became effect. And we still have a few years left until it 
the actual compliance date starts to be enforced, and that's October 16th, 2024. It may seem far away, but it's about two and a half years away from now. So as a new father of twins, I can tell you time flies because I already won. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it goes beyond. I mean, you know, one of the things I I have really come to appreciate about Marcus Beyond is what a great human being he is beyond the legislation itself, the things surrounding it, right? So some of the funding components and the bipartisan infrastructure bill and stuff we'll talk about, but the level of detail that he and and some of the folks here have gone to, when we think about how much federal language we're trying to really distill here and the tens of thousands of systems and the people that that support those, uh, we really have a major gap in getting this distilled down to a curriculum that can be understood and, and, and promulgated. So uh, Marcus's expertise and his ability to really pull out the incredibly important components uh, of these pieces of legislation like the bipartisan infrastructure law, because this is a, a funded mandate in many ways, but how do we actually get that information and, and those workflows open so that people can take advantage and begin to apply that to get work done and that needs to be done? I'm just glad someone has read this. <laughs> <laughs> me me too. Me too. You know, um, I, I don't think there's many operators and engineers out there that are going to spend time to read the whole thing. So I appreciate that, that level of commitment. And like you said, time flies. You know, I know so many operators are like, ah, I'll just let the, you know, the next person take care of it. But there's really no time to wait for that next person. No, no, there isn't. Uh, there is so much work that needs to be done. And yeah, you know, as I've been on the road traveling state to state, and Marcus has joined me on a number of state uh, association educational seminars and so forth. And yeah, I've heard it a ton. Well, I'm not going to be around. I'm retiring in a couple of years or I'm retiring next year. Certainly, like Marcus said, we had this kind of this donut hole, this big gap of time as the administrations were transitioning mm-hmm. on you know, evaluating this uh, and making sure and virtually nothing changed. But we lost over 200 days of viable work time. So I've always said when I'm out here, please, 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 you know, the inventory being the foundational component, we need to start figuring out what our individual utility plans are now. Yeah, today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are these new additions to LCR? What is all the excitement about? Out of the gate, it is certainly all about this service line inventory. In order for us to truly deal with this problem, this legislation is designed to find out where these lines are, to identify them, the material type of almost every service line, uh, commercial or residential in the country, and then develop a plan as they find it uh, to remove it. And they're taking, in some ways, I think, a page out of what Michigan did after Flint. They implemented a pretty stringent rule, complete with the inventory, compliance sampling changes to profile our sequential sampling and the first and fifth methodology and a number of things. Those to me are are kind of the biggies, the beginning and and ending with that inventory. And, and, And a lot of the legislation, in my opinion, kind of hinges upon the successful completion or the building out of that inventory. I don't know, Marcus, if you want to add. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't agree more that the inventory is really the foundation upon which every single other requirement and program associated with the lead and copper rule revisions is based off. The inventory directly affects the generation of tier sites for annual, biennial, triennial LCR monitoring. It will impact your ability to replace those lead service lines, your replace annual replacement rate. There are communication requirements now associated with those unknown, quote, lead service lines, end quote. Mm-hmm. So the inventory is really going to impact everything you do. 
So getting that, starting on that sooner rather than later will help you start chipping away at various other programs of the lead and copper rule revision. Yeah, you can't replace what you don't know you have. As we know, and Marcus has, has pointed this out, you know, there's a funding available in fiscal 2022 through the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act. You know, they opened up some of that funding for water and wastewater infrastructure projects. So, and I always say it pays to know this law. The more that these operators understand, the better that they're going to be able to plan and put their kind of actions in a good sequential order so that we're not taking 15 steps forward to take five back. Yeah. What I have always said is this is designed for us to find the issues and take action. And they've really studied this legislation throughout, closing any loopholes, so to speak. But really, we're going to address this issue. We were installing a lot of lead for a lot of years, for many, many decades. Well, it Um, was really useful. It was. It it was soft. (laughs) It was malleable. It was incredibly resistant. You know, the the Romans, you know, they love to take baths. They had to have good water. We can blame it on the Romans then. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. No, I don't want to do that. (laughs) All right. All right. You also talked about some sampling. Some of these topics we're going to get a little bit more into, but the action and trigger levels, what those are. Yeah. So one of the things I think that we want to talk about, and I certainly do when I when I give my presentations, is that we are going to be awaiting some more guidance in the form of this something called the lead and copper rule improvements. Essentially, my takeaway was that as the current administration was evaluating the law, they basically said, this is good, but we have some things that we need to, to address. There are some complications. They kept the action level of 15 parts per billion and introduced this trigger level, but it has created a lot of confusion for systems about like, what if I'm at 12? What exactly... Do I optimize my corrosion control to 10 or 15? So the administration in US EPA has certainly said, look, we're going to try to clear up some confusion and we'll probably give that piece of legislative update before the compliance date of October 16th, 2024. They're likely going to take a look at compliance sampling and along with the inventory come changes to the tier sites. Currently, we have three tier sites that we've all been very familiar with since the 1991 rule, but this new tier site structure is going to be based solely on the inventory and is going to be comprised of five tiers. And the first and second tier are going to be basically homes, single or multifamily homes that are served by known service lines. Those will be required to be sampled in the first and fifth methodology where the first leader is drawn after stagnation and tested for copper. The second, third, and fourth liter are kind of, you know, just wasted. And then the fifth liter is tested for lead. And the idea is that what they found throughout that process in Flint or in the state of Michigan, when they brought this forward is that that is a better indicator of what the water analysis is telling you that may be sitting somewhere outside the the home's plumbing or the fixtures. One thing that I like about what I'm seeing in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and here, or not bill, but law, uh, and here is you know, the prioritization of those underserved communities. Yes. Those people that have always had the inequality, hopefully we'll be addressing those issues. I just read an article on uh, that uh, in another community where the city, they're like, this has been a chronically horrible situation. We need to address it now. Listening to Marcus on some of these funding seminars, they are doing, you know, <laughs> I think George Hegel said it. He was a philosopher that said, you know, the only thing history teaches us is that humans learn nothing from history. Uh, <laughs> he was a great philosopher, but um, I, I think that we are trying to say, look, it's all there. Where have we failed in the past with these type of large federal infrastructure bills? Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, I think Marcus has done a great job pointing out how all the different programs within the bipartisan infrastructure law have 
caveats and they've, they're trying to protect some of those funds to make sure that they do get to those cities and towns and communities that need it most. That's pretty exciting. And I wanted to add to that as underserved communities is a very, is an umbrella term, right? And it is yeah. up to the primacy state agencies to clearly delineate what constitutes an underserved or disadvantaged community. So oh, okay. each state will have different definitions as to what will qualify based upon that definition. But there's a number of different factors that usually go into play. Usually it's population size. So mm-hmm. those smaller systems, more rural towns, those are, are generally considered more underserved or disadvantaged uh, in terms of human capital resources and mm-hmm. available financial resources, but also looking at more urban populations or suburban populations that have a lower median household income indicators or other different factors that can influence that. So if you're curious to know if your community qualifies or certain parts of your community can be designated as an underserved community, go to your uh, state primary agency, understand what their definition is, because it is up to the states to define how that kind of what the criteria are for those. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that you mentioned, Heather, and it's, and Lowell, you referenced it as well, is that this is a monumental moment in the water industry, not just legislatively, but as Lowell mentioned earlier, this is in effect a funded mandate. We're here to talk about lead and copper rule revisions, which you know were released in December 2020, became effective in December 2021. Well, between when the bill was put in the Federal Register and when it became effective, there were different funding mechanisms that were ultimately proposed and passed by our government. And they specifically benefited the water industry. And it's unprecedented. The, the single largest investment in the water space uh, ever occurred through the bipartisan infrastructure law. And as we were talking about earlier, through kind of prioritizing underserved communities, there is concrete efforts being made by the government to ensure that a significant portion of these funds are specifically focused on those underserved communities, making sure this once in a generation type of investment, especially in the water industry, goes to benefit those communities that are in most in need and will have the most impactful effect in their constituents. Yeah. And I'll say this, it is an incredible moment that we're experiencing as far as the amount of money and, and resources being allocated, but is it ever enough? And, and, you know, to those that are listening, you know, that's why it's so imperative and so important that you begin the process of planning. Now, this money isn't just going to be there waiting. And like any dollar that's borrowed or given, there is a term and condition. So it's important that you understand what are those term and conditions? What are the definitions around what I qualify for and what are the processes or ways that I need to begin planning? Because I, I understand. And the more I talk to, especially these rural communities who are doing three times the work with a third of the staff or resources, we, we, <laughs> oh, yeah. we, re- we need to <laughs> have a plan here and it all begins now or yesterday in in some cases. That's what I I think of as well, because a lot of these operators do the water, do the wastewater side, go and mow the baseball field, help with the trash. So this is something that has to come down from their bosses as well. This can't be only the operator taking this on. It needs to go up and down the chain of command in any community, regardless of size. I always say, get your hand up early, get an understanding of your specific utility and community situation and to the best of your ability and, you know, carve out some time, but make sure that you get your hand up. I I haven't run across a system yet that isn't going to need some semblance of help or some sort of help or guidance or resource around the the technical and the physical lift of what this new law is asking and mandating these utilities do. So what other additional actions should we be aware of? I can speak to the very brand new requirement, I think is also causing utilities and systems to kind of be a bit anxious, is this Mm -hmm. requirement to 
test all the childcare facilities and elementary schools that are served in their system. Yeah. The brand new requirement as part of the lead and copper rule revisions. Now the overall protocol is consistent with EPA three T's testing for lead in school and childcare facilities, which is a statewide voluntary program that many states have adopted to encourage the voluntary testing of their water from consumption outlets to test for the presence of lead and ultimately uh, remediate the lead sources if they are present. So this is a requirement uh, over a period of five years, each system is required to offer sampling to all childcare facilities and elementary schools in their, in their service area. And not just the sampling in itself, but also there's a lot of communication components around that in terms of public outreach, educating those facilities around how best to collect those samples, what are the health effects of lead, uh, what are some mitigation tactics that they can also take on? There's some reporting requirements that have to go into effect afterwards as well, reporting to the primary agency, local health department. And I think this particular requirement speaks to a broader uh, tenant that I've seen in the lead and copper rule revisions, which is re really around collaboration. It's every single one of the requirements we've talked about to date is a lot for a utility system in and of itself to take on. It requires collaboration. Lowell has been working very closely with rural water associations, which are fantastic advocacy organizations and support networks to uh -huh. be able to share best practices, resources, and uh, tips and tools as to how best to start chipping away at some of these. But I think often an underutilized resource are the communities themselves, right? Relying on the residents who are a part of your community. This is their water too. How can they play a more proactive role in, this, in these various programs and really be in service of meeting some of those lead and copper rule requirements. Now talking about lead in the water is obviously very, uh, very sensitive topic, right? We, we, oh, yeah. <laughs> you, led the, you led the conversation talking about, about Flint. There are other cities and other places in this country who have done a, a different tact in terms of engaging their community proactively, building really a, a cohort of the willing, so to speak, with regard to tackling this issue head on in their communities. And whether that's uh, getting the word out in terms of awareness building, actually uh, taking action on the ground, submitting data around uh, lead service on inventory. There's various different ways that community members can get involved in, in support of meeting the lead and copper rule requirements. Yeah, I'll just, I'll add, Heather, that mm -hmm. one of the things, like Marcus said, and you said, any discussion around a contaminant like lead, which again, there's no known safe level for human consumption, uh, is, is a very tricky thing. So, you know, communications, and I tell our systems, regardless of how, how you are, you're going to have to engage and create a new kind of dialogue with your, with your customers and your residents. Uh, and as Marcus said, I mean, there are some great examples of good, right, uh, of lead mitigation and reduction programs across the country in a number of different states that have really leaned into the whole concept of we can either do this communicating very well or poorly and really leading with a strong communications plan. When you take something like what Marcus just talked about, like with this uh, schools and daycares, right? That's uh -huh. 20, the law states that you have to do 20% of schools per year for five years so that in five years time, you'll have a hundred percent of your schools and daycares tested. And that is K through eight built before 2014 on the, on the elementary or the, the school side. But think about how are you going to answer a question or can you proactively communicate to get around the, the reason that, a, that a, a concerned citizen or mother or father may say, why is my child's school not being tested for three years? Why are these other ones? You know, so it, yeah. it, it really does 
bring a whole new dynamic and the opportunity to have a new type of discussion with these residents. And, uh, you know, there are some certainly some places in the law that require certain public notifications within a certain time frame for system-wide exceedances. You got 24 hours instead of the 30 days. But communication, where it's not explicitly written, still is very much implied and needs to be contemplated as these plans are put together. Oh, yeah. I'm just envisioning the postcard going around, hey, we need you to test for lead. And then all of the friends and family calling me. Yeah. Have, what have, is this have, happening? <laughs> yeah. We live in a world of 24-hour news cycles. It's the information age, right? You have community dialogues and constant groups and, and online forums and so forth. And you know, it's one of those things, again, that's not explicitly written that you have to have a communications plan, but it is certainly one of those things that we, we try to say, hey, given the complexities and the nuances of this law, it's very, very important that you think about how communication plays that role. Yeah. No, I agree. It could be big if not planned. Uh-huh. And I like how also, you know, you all mentioned when we were in our conversations, this discouraging that partial lead line replacement, that, you know, the whole thing, not just up to where we want. Yeah, Heather, as I was telling you, as I go around the country and talk to some of these um, communities at these at these events and, and Marcus, you know, joining many times is the controversy or the concern over the fact that, you know, we have to document or identify the material type, not only on what the utility owns, which is typically, you know, from the main to that mm-hmm. curb stopper, that, that meter and in some states. Uh, but, you know, what is the material type on the private side? And, and really, you know, what I explained to them is, look, if we're really going to try and, and address this issue and put it to bed once and for all, what is what is the point in just documenting and taking care of the public side? You know, we know that lead service lines were certainly uh, a very, very good option based on the malleability of the metal on private home service lines. So in order to encourage from a policy standpoint, the the law does kind of discourage and says, look, you know, if you do get yourself into a situation where you submit a a service line replacement plan and you're replacing a certain percentage of either unknown lines or known lines or those that um, galvanized lines that are currently or ever were connected to lead, a partial line will not count. And what I've gathered, and and certainly Marcus, keep me uh, honest here, but, you know, some of the legislation and the language and and things like the bipartisan infrastructure law were kind of changed to make sure that you know even funding is available to ensure that full service line replacements are done, uh, because it really just doesn't do the job entirely when we only think about partial line replacements. If that makes sense. I've heard the conversations with the operators and stuff. Where do we stop? And that's why I was excited when I heard about the infrastructure and the funding and so forth coming. That is like, oh, good, all of it. I want all of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, essentially from the main to the point of entry, right? Wherever that yeah. that line hooks up in the home. Because I, one of the biggest questions I get is, where does my liability begin and end? Is this internal plumbing? It's the, literally the lateral that is conveying that water from the main to where that hooks up in the home. And it does get kind of tricky. There are homes with basements and crawl spaces. There's a lot of parts of the country that are slab on grade. This is, again, why it's so important to understand exactly what you have, what kind of homes, how they're built and the difference, because you, you'll run into a lot of things. A lot of these homes and these communities were built from the 1800s, you know, uh, up, up to more recent. Thankfully, I'm a little more recent in my home. <laughs> yeah. I think the house I grew up in was like 18, I think 68 or something. Oh, wow. And good old Milton, Indiana, you know, the little town of 600. But I know that those exist all over the country. Milton's exist everywhere. We've got a lot of work to do before October 16, 2024. Let's just dive in a little bit more into that lead service line inventory because there's different phases to it and you know, different parts to it. Where do we start? 
Well, this is, I think is a great opportunity for Marcus as an account manager. I mean, he's working with so many of our customers on these type of programs and he is there helping them get themselves oriented and, and ready to tackle the, the most important component in, in many ways of the, of the inventory. So Marcus, do you want to share on that side of things? Absolutely. And I feel like uh, usually where we start in terms of process working with our clients is understanding what data is currently available and accessible that will be in service of the service line inventory. Now the service line inventory, you have to document both public and private side, actually having verified evidence that can speak to the material type of both service lines. And the biggest part is understanding where to start. And we generally look at customer billing data. That's some of the most uh, useful data in terms of having the true addresses with account numbers. And those are obviously your rate payers as well. So those are very important. And we can use that as a foundation and then cross-reference GIS data if there's other information or work order system, if there's as-builts or um, other documentation tap cards that will speak to those service addresses. We're uh-huh. building out a web of you know, different data sources that all connect back to that address, that service address. From there, that's what we kind of focus on, the preliminary inventory. That's really understanding what data do you currently have at your disposal, whether it's in digital format or it's in paper format, understanding where is your, where are you today, right? Kind of giving you a litmus test as to where you're at right here and now, and also where you need to go. We know what the deadline is, October 16th, 2024. We know what success looks like in terms of uh, submitting your inventory to the primary agency. Understanding where you're at will help you better understand where you need to go and how you need to get there. So understanding what data you currently have, especially data that is acceptable by the EPA, by your primary agency, it's an acceptable data source. So for instance, institutional knowledge is incredibly important in informing your inventory. There's some folks who have been with the system for uh, 30, 40 years. They're going to have a lot of anecdotal information to talk through what they've seen, what they haven't seen. Unfortunately, though, that is not a source that's acceptable by many primary agencies, right? Uh, Just kind of uh, people talking about their experiences. That being said, you can use that information to kind of understand where are other, quote, more valid sources to be able to back that up. So I feel like you should use every information at your disposal, especially folks who know the system really well, who have been working at the institution for some time, but ultimately you have to go back to what will your primary agency accept with regard to an acceptable data source and be sure to be able to cross-reference those two pieces. From there, uh, you can, once you have your preliminary inventory, understand where you're at today, mm-hmm. and you already know where you're going, then you can start planning out what are some appropriate verification methods, right? There are various different ways to verify the service line material. Some are very expensive, but proven really well, and uh-huh. some are much more affordable, but also require a lot more, let's say, uh, buy-in and collaboration with the resident or the tenant there. And understanding what are, what's an appropriate verification method, not just for your system in terms of affordability and resources, but also what is an acceptable verification method from your primary agency will be really important too. You'd hate to actually, let's say, um, buy a bunch of water testing kits to do some profile sampling to be able to uh, uh, gather concrete data points to speak to potentially the service line material in your service line, but your primary agency won't accept that as a sufficient method, right? I have heard rumors that the EPA is expected to announce here over the next few weeks, some Mm -hmm. updated guidance to systems, to states with regard to verification methods and what have you. Some states have already taken the lead 
and uh, talked through and said, this is what we'll accept. Michigan being a, a prime example of first mover advantage, New Jersey, yeah. even and most recently West Virginia. Uh, other states are waiting for the EPA to give further guidance before they're actually going to review such and then uh, communicate to their systems. When I first heard preliminary inventory, I just had this kind of nightmare of walking into all these old engineering drawings. You know, the, the, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're kind of crumpled on the edges or, yeah. you know, and they look nothing like what's there today. <laughs> yep. So I was very excited to hear that there's other ways to start this as well. In addition to this, it's not just all that old engineering drawing. And then Bob's like, oh, that was out 20 years ago. We never used that. Like Marcus said, that's why it's so important to start now. I mean, records review and gathering that data. What we've seen is a lot of systems that have data living in about 15, 20, 30 different places. Some might be on a drawing, like you said, a schematic that may or may not have been updated, but it's really important to get a 360 degree view of what that looks like. So I tell people, you're going to have things that come up and we talked about it, right? People are out pushing snow, throwing salt, picking up trash, all those sort of things. You have to make it a priority to sit down and go through those records. That is your most efficient, cost-effective way of knowing what you are getting to a point where you know what you know, and then you're identifying your gaps of what you don't. But when you think about things like even something as simple as tax parcel data, again, this country, we put a ban in place on lead service lines and and some local plumbing codes in 1986. The federal government did give states a couple of years in case they had large stockpiles of pre-purchased types of material. But like when I was in you know, St. George, Utah, who's experiencing a ton of growth, much like a lot of Western states and counties, mm-hmm. if you built a home or hooked up service in 1993, it was illegal to use lead. You know, that, that is a very good data point. So there's no bad data at this point that you can begin to gather and centralize and you'd be surprised. And and I think Marcus has probably experienced this, like people typically know more than they think, but it just because it lives siloed in many different locations that they don't have that picture, which is why, again, if you prioritize the process of getting this done, hopefully you'll be pleasantly surprised with what you know. But I, I, I also happen to know a lot of systems that have either suffered fire or floods and lost a ton of records. Yeah. And kind of puts them back at square one. But to his point on the preliminary inventory creation process is really just data review. Uh, I know that we have done, you know, digitization of thousands of records for systems, taking those paper records and getting them in digital format. But that takes time. It takes planning. And again, there there's definitely funding out there to help if you don't have that capability, but you have the need. Let's, uh, let's figure out a way to get it done for you. Yeah. And if I don't have to sit with the dusty uh, paper (laughs) 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 from the 60s, you know, or something like that, hey, that's not too bad either. So prioritization and replacement, we've touched on a little bit. Anything more to say about that? The replacement rate is directly calculated based upon your inventory. It's a combination of known lead service lines. So you actually can have verifiable evidence that that service line is lead, galvanized requiring replacement which is categorized, is lumped in as kind of a known lead service line because galvanized, especially if galvanized was a downstream of a lead service line at one point. So making sure that galvanized was not downstream of lead is really important unless you can verify or document that that is in fact the case that will be lumped in to be investigate as well as any unknowns, which unfortunately is, are the vast majority of service line materials for many of our, uh, for many systems, right? It's just, I don't know what the service material is. That rate is calculated based upon those three inputs. Okay. And you have an annual replacement rate every single year that you need to hit to what we, our conversation earlier, a partial replacement does not count toward that replacement rate, only a full replacement. 
And there's funding through the bipartisan infrastructure law that will help fund the full replacement of lead service lines. The vast majority of funding that is being funneled to support development of the inventories and replacement programs are being funneled through the drinking water state revolving funds and the clean water state revolving funds. These are proven mechanisms that have been in place for um, almost 20 years, and they're great at distributing money to help finance and fund drinking water infrastructure projects. Now, what comes into the other point of your question, Heather, was around prioritization. And that will really be, the onus will then be on the uh, system because as Lowell mentioned earlier, funding, although there is a lot of funding out here in fiscal year 2022, as well as over the next five fiscal years, there's still not enough to meet the demand that we have from systems. So many of the funds that are available are available through competitive applications. So you have to actually submit an application, Uh make your case to the drinking water SRF or the state primary agency as to why your project should deserve funding. And prioritization of projects will encompass really around ensuring that the impact of the project will have benefit certain populations that the law has been and the regulation have been designed to impact. So underserved or disadvantaged communities, making sure that you're designing projects that will have a positive impact on those communities will help your application move in the right direction. The replacement bucket of the drinking water SRF bipartisan infrastructure law funding is not just for replacement of lead service lines. It's also used to develop inventory, identify sources of lead, planning and design work, and as well as actual execution of replacement programs. It's really a full circle with regard to what is being funded through the drinking water SRFs. Yeah. So it really pays them to get to know this, to see what money is available, what money you don't have to have, don't do have to have. No, I think that that's important. It does pay to know. I I say it all the time. Hey, if someone else can pay for this, this is a great thing. (laughs) Let's just dive a little bit more into these things because you guys had a lot of details. And when I listened to your presentations and so forth, we've talked about the the public and private service lines, all that being done by October 16th, 2024. When we're talking about the preliminary inventory and planning of the LSLI, what must be included and what should you include in this? Yeah, those are some important questions. We get those a lot. Uh, and I'll certainly let Marcus chime in. I, I think from a preliminary standpoint, right, we, we have to make sure that this is has a location identifier. This has to come back to some sort of physical address. And this is comprised of all commercial and residential lines, potable and non-potable. Mm-hmm. As you build it, basically the law states, these have to fall into one of four buckets. They're either a known lead line, Okay. A galvanized pipe previously or currently connected to lead. That is a okay. second bucket. The third is non-lead and the fourth is an unknown. So what you're being asked to do is to submit a preliminary inventory by October 16, 2024. And it does not mean that you have to be lead free. It does not mean you have to know everything. As I just said, one of those buckets is an unknown. We understand yeah. that there's very little records on the private side, if any. So they are allowing that is all part of what do you know and what don't you know and what's your plan to go basically systematically and methodically get to a point where you do know. But we certainly say that is the, the federal requirement. Okay. But given that we, we're already seeing a change to the law that was passed, right? The LCRI is coming and legislation is by no means perfect and it's it's iterative. So if we are being asked and mandated to go through this exercise of building the inventory, don't say it's not lead. Say what it is. Is it cast? Is it stainless? Is it copper? Uh-huh. Is it poly? The reason that this hurts so much 
is because we don't, we've never done the work. It's the heavy, heavy lift that we're being asked to do. So if we can take this opportunity to document absolutely everything we can, what you'll see here, and uh, you know, it doesn't require you to put in the meter loop or the pigtail or gooseneck or whatever it's called, depending yeah. on where you're at in the country, get that identified, get it documented. At some point, we're probably going to have to deal with that. So we're saying definitely comply with the law, do those four things, but uh, you should be include all galvanized regardless, include the goosenecks and the pigtails, include copper with lead solder and, and detail the actual materials for anything non-lead. Yeah. Just know it all, get it all done right the first time. Yeah. Because again, we don't know what the regulatory environment is going to look like in the next five, 10, 15 years. So the more information that we have, that information is power <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we'll reduce the need to go and fund this all over again in the future. So we have this, I believe it's a great opportunity. It is a challenge, but it's certainly a great opportunity to, to really understand the distribution systems throughout the country in a nuanced, detailed fashion that we've never had before. Got it. And I loved how you guys mentioned earlier how to look at it, the tap cards, billing cards, the plumbing permits. What else could they look at? I'm like, I'm sure you've seen it all by now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Lo mentioned uh, tax parcel data. That's a great resource for the building information, which is usually you can better understand the building age and therefore some of the plumbing material therein. That can help, especially if you have a clear deadline of when lead was officially outlawed in your respective state. Uh, capital project plans or as-built documentation around when certain neighborhoods were built. There is also the ability to look at work orders or plumbing permits that have been reported as well. We all are a part of uh, submitting annual, biannual, or triennial LCR monitoring reports, right? Those are very acceptable data points that can speak to what your system is experiencing. So you have those on hand, definitely leverage those. And I think one other thing that's interesting as well is you may not have documentation on every single location that you can speak to very clearly around that. Uh -huh. Some states are accepting machine learning. So if you have data for a subset of your locations, and you're able to maybe project out and predict what is the material in the, uh, at this location based upon these various factors, right? Uh, some states like Michigan accept machine learning predictions as uh, acceptable data sources to uh, inform verification efforts and replacement programs. You know what? I just actually saw a presentation on that and I thought that was interesting, but that's not everywhere. You're saying, once again, go back to that primacy and ask whether that's valid. Absolutely. I mean useful yep. tool regardless, but figure out if that's the one that works. And then of course, there's always the field sampling and that's yep. a whole new ball game. It's a whole new ball game. And obviously it's the most expensive. Anything you're doing in the field is going to require labor, so many different costs in terms of equipment, permitting, other resources that are going to go into that. That is one of the most hardcore ways to get your data. But obviously uh -huh. if, you, if you do a test pit or a pothole and you can uh, get a visual verification of the service line, that is a great data point, but is it worth the uh, $1,500 odd dollars per pothole? I don't, I'm not sure, uh, especially if there are more affordable options to do that, potentially profile sampling or special purpose sampling. Again, your primary agency can and should outline what are acceptable ways to verify the service line material, especially if you have unknowns, right? And understand where, where you're at today, but then in terms of prioritization, look at those communities that have a high population of children under five or certain median household income uh, factors or a percentage of the population who identifies a racial minority. Those are the most vulnerable populations. Looking at the intersection of your unknowns 
or galvanized or known lead service lines and those other factors will just help you better target and have impact on the populations that most need to have the, that impact. Well said. Basically, you're becoming detectives. <laughs> I yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> you're becoming, I mean, you can wear the little uh, Sherlock Holmes hat if you want, but you just really have to investigate, I think. Yes. Nerd on. Now, <laughs> I know, Lowell, you, I loved your uh, table that you did because it covered a bunch of different scenarios. Yeah. So can you just give us how you put that together? Because yeah. I think so that would be useful. Basically, what I was trying to, to illustrate here is that I, I wish it was as simple as we all want it to be, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I wish that it was just as simple as the public side is led, the private side's not, the inverse of that, the private side is led and the, and the public side is not, or the whole thing is led. But when you factor into things like the connector, right? I mean, there are required actions that have to be taken depending on what you find. And th that table, which spans three slides, is what I was trying to say is that <laughs> What we're trying to say is that you really need to know your stuff. <laughs> you know, obviously there's going to be some things that you can anticipate, but there's going to be things that you uncover that you just never could have fathomed. And it's important to have a foundational understanding of like, what tier site is this going to follow into? How, how does this get qualified or what category, what tier site would this be once 2024 comes around? This goes all the way into, again, customer communications, or are we going to be required to send a picture in six months of filtration with an NSF uh, 53 certified device? That table was saying, I don't want to overwhelm you. I would, I would like you to be whelmed, <laughs> but, uh, but not, not overwhelmed. So. Okay. <laughs> but I need you to understand that there are required implications to what you're going to be, uh, as you put on your investigator hat and you get your monocle, you know, and you begin yeah. that detective work, like you're going to have to understand that there are things that you're going to have to do based on what you find. So that table was really just a, a way of me trying to illustrate and convey that, you know, this is not going to be something that you can put off all too often when we think of some, about something like the OEA, right? The emergency response preparedness plans that was passed in October 18. And, you know, we, we had three years to comply with it. Right. But people waited that, you know, I'm, what I was trying to say is you can't wait. There's so much work that needs to be done. You're going to uncover so many things that you just couldn't prepare for. So get to know the, uh, the legislation, get to know what you're being required to do. And then as you go out and you begin to uncover things, you'll have at least you'll feel confident in a, it's, you know, scenario A, B, and C, and then you'll be able to take D, E, and F to, to your primacy agency or local officials and say, hey, what do I do with this? But yeah, that is a very unpopular series of slides, Heather. <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I just kind of think of it like when we were in high school or college, whenever you're in school and your teacher gives you that report that's due in a month. And if you're really good, you maybe started two or three days beforehand, but most people start the day before. Yep. And this is one of those, like the science fair project where you can't wait, you have to build the data for it. So yeah. you're going to have to use that month you know, yes. or you know, the time that you've been given. Because if you don't, with that example, right, there were people that started the month and they got the help, they got the resources, they did, they did, you know, there are going to be systems that go out there and start now. And those are going to be the ones that have good intended use plans and preliminary engineering reports that are going to facilitate a faster path to getting the funding. If you try to wait, you're going to be behind the eight ball all the way and probably miss some key opportunities to, to get the funding and, and, and resources and help. So I'm not trying to fear monger or do the doom and gloom stuff, but it's just, it's the reality of the size, scope and scale, the magnitude of what we're talking about in this federal legislation and uh, how this is going to be kind of rolled out state by state. Maybe I'm just having flashbacks helping my son this last semester with the papers that were due the next day. And I'm like, this is nothing but an ulcer. 
(laughs) (laughs) I don't care what Socrates said. You know, it's just, it's 10 o'clock. Let's go to bed. Yeah. But we can't do that with this. No, we can't. We cannot wait. How do our communities help with this? Because we've mentioned that a couple of times, you know, utilize the community. Well, what can they do to help? There are various different ways that members of the community and the public can help. And we, I think they are underutilized stakeholders in this work as well. As we touched on, there are a wide variety of requirements for lead and copper rule revisions and engaging your residents to help them be a part of the one or multiple programs is a great way to pretty much alleviate some of the load on your shoulders and really build a a concerted effort locally. So first is customer surveys. So that is a a great way to engage them directly is to understand uh, if those customers can take that survey, if they understand, if they know the the private side in their home, if they're willing to take a photo or if they are willing to do a scratch test, gathering effectively helping gather data on your behalf with regard to the lead service line inventory. Um, sampling is also a great way. We all know the headaches of collecting uh, lead and copper rule samples, but relying on your community to collect samples is a great way to gather additional data that can potentially speak to the material type in your service lines. I would also advise checking, especially before you do sampling uh-huh. activities. It's a great way to gather data. It does cost money and resources to procure those. Check with your primary agency first to understand what are acceptable types of sampling to be able to verify and validate the service line materials. Some states like West Virginia have clearly indicated acceptable types of sampling that they are willing to accept to be able to determine the service line inventory. Other states have not said anything yet. So I would hate for uh, communities and systems to procure assets and then leverage them and go through the hustle and the hassle of gathering all that data. And then it can't be used for your inventory, right? So make sure you check with your primary agency first Uh, what are acceptable to be able to engage them and ultimately engage customers there. I think lastly, I would say those are obviously very targeted events, surveys and sampling, but having a robust communications campaign, not just reactive where, oh, there is an action level exceedance or we're trying to meet this deadline, but how do you really be proactive in your communications with your community? Make this be an issue for them that they care about and they want to be able to get involved and help out with. Uh, City of Newark, has done a really great job of over many years building a solid coalition with community partners, neighborhood associations, religious Mm -hmm. institutions, other community groups, neighborhood churches to be able to ultimately get the word out about these different programs and how folks can get involved and, and be a part of them. The biggest campaigns I've seen, at least in my community, is they've shown up in the library. They've shown up in the bills, the paperwork, postcards and things like that makes you just aware. And I love that idea of you bringing the community along so that everyone is willing to provide you information and willing to accept your plan. Yeah, this this is designed to protect public health. I mean, everything that we're, we're talking about here is, is designed to figure these things out and protect them. So it's, it is the opportunity to proactively and positively communicate what it is that we're doing and, and hopefully get these communities involved in some fashion. I think it can help open the door and redefine some of these rather kind of one-way type of relationships that we've had, whether we're just sending a bill monthly or saying, hey, something went wrong, you need to boil your water. Hey, this is what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And we need your help in some fashion. This will only be leveraged in other campaigns you have to do that doesn't deal with the water. I mean, like this is just good community outreach in general. Absolutely. Now that we've collected all this water quality data, and I know we've talked about trigger levels a little bit, but uh, can y'all just kind of (laughs) clarify 
<laughs> I think with this one, and, and Marcus, we would love to get your thoughts, but I mean, given that this was one of the most highly talked about components of the lead and copper rule improvements, right? The, okay. Let's wait to see what EPA gives us as far as the guidance. We know that they established this trigger level of 10 parts per billion in an effort to identify where problems might exist, which would create action. But that action is is confusing about, again, when you think about corrosion control, where do you optimize to? Uh, if I'm at 12 or 13 or 14 and a half, whatever it might be. So uh-huh. I think that being aware that there is a trigger level today of 10, the action level stayed at 15, but EPA is looking into this and figuring out exactly what they want this to be and mean. And they have promised guidance ahead of that deadline. So hopefully we'll, uh-huh. we'll see that. Marcus, anything that you want to add or that you know to be out there as far as the, the action trigger levels are concerned at this point? A fact of the matter is that just because an action level is introduced, especially when there's a lower threshold, even if it's one part per billion less than the than the action level right now, that will have impact on systems with regard to 90th percentile reporting. Yeah, uh, there was there was a great article that looked at systems across Michigan and when they actually lowered their action level, what impact that had, and pretty much every single system was impacted with regard to 90th percentile reporting. So that take that action level seriously. At to Lowell's point, though, there's still some ambiguity around what exactly occurs if you're greater than 10 parts per billion, but less than 15 parts per billion. That being said, there's other systems that have taken on themselves to say, you know what, I'm just going to adhere to a 10 parts per billion or five parts per billion in terms of my action level exceedance. That way I'm one, protecting public health to the utmost, but then two, if it, there is any changes with regard to the action level in the future, I am proactively making efforts to not have to react and, and race after that fact. Got it. Ooh, I'm starting to feel like we've talked about so much now. <laughs> <laughs> we've covered a lot. We could literally talk for hours, you know, on all the nuances and, and facets to this. And, you know, then there's the whole concept of funding, which is a separate discussion in many ways because there's just so much information, but it is a lot. I mean, that is one thing that as I go around and, and, and do these seminars and these training sessions and so forth is just, it is a lot of information again which is my call to action of this is just a portion. Please, please, please begin your individual and collective process of diving in and understanding all the components of this, of what we're being asked to, to really learn and deal with here. Both of you mentioned it a little bit previously, but thinking through that entire workflow, through communication, the sampling, remediation, compliance, like not just this one little thing, but I need to think about the whole path that we have to take to completion. I, I think that's really valuable. Yeah, this is a multi-phase, multi, multi-pronged and faceted thing that we need to think through. And there are many, many, many components to this. So yeah, very, very important that people understand kind of the beginning, the middle and the end, what this means. Again, every utility that I've met or talked to is unique with the people that they have or don't have, the resources that they do or don't have. Everyone's path to this compliance GPS point October 16, 2024, is going to be a, a little bit different from a coordinate standpoint. So understanding those those pieces is going to be really, really important to making this as linear and smooth as possible. Okay. So how about in summary, what would you say, I mean, we're kind of summarizing it, but anything else that we should add? Regardless of where your system has been, whether you've ever had an exceedance or not, or you've had issues, regardless of where you are, all systems have to do this inventory, every single one of them. And now is, is the time to really start. Because a lot of the components of this law do 
in fact, hinge on this inventory, people need to start that process now. I loved how you put on the presentation, embrace your unknowns. <laughs> embrace your unknowns, but you have to know what that means. We are saying that, look, it's not feasible for us to go out and identify and get eyes or records on every single line. So you can say you don't know. But as we've talked about briefly here a couple of different times, that an unknown line may be led and therefore needs to be treated as such. And that has implications for replacement, what you're going to be required to do from a replacement standpoint. So what, what I really try to say is understand that there are foundational pillars of this law that we all need to be familiar with, but there are places and nuances and things that we really have to understand if this happens, what then? So if I have a lot of unknowns, what does that mean? What might I be required to do if the EPA lowers the action level or however they're going to fix this? What, what does that mean now that I have a majority of unknown lines? So I just had a lot of people that have come to me and said, well, if you tell me I can say I don't know, and that's a, a valid inventory, then guess what? I don't know. You know, and it's, yeah, <laughs> you can certainly take that approach. But again, this law and this initiative is designed to, to solve an issue. Uh, so there are going to be some things attached to having a large inventory of unknown lines. But, you know, I also say, think about future proofing. This is not a here today, gone tomorrow issue. The inventories are going to be a living, breathing things in, uh, until you can prove the absence of lead. Uh -huh. So as we go through this effort and we have some funding and we have some resources, get yourself positioned to future proof your process. And again, we don't have crystal balls. We can't see what the regulatory or poli the political environment is going to look like, but whatever may come down the pike, again, we were installing lead for decades and we found out it wasn't good. So yeah. what's to say that some of the things that we've used in the past 20 years, 30 years may not come back up in five or 10 years from a regulatory standpoint. So the more information we have and we can gather with the resources available now can protect us and future-proof ourselves and those that come after us as far as working and, and operating these systems. So I always say that and certainly think about communications. Again, it's not explicitly written so much as other components. But it is, when we think about the smoothest, most linear path to compliance, communications really need to be contemplated at a very high level. They actually have a battle plan. In place. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you don't want to think about battling your customers, but <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> have siege or something. But yeah. <laughs> Marcus, did you have anything you wanted to add as well? I just want to echo everything that Lowell said, because I think it tees up nicely to my point, because I've really came at this from a funding perspective throughout this conversation. And there is a lot of funding available right now and over the next five years. Through the bipartisan infrastructure law, $55 billion has been made available over the next five years to support drinking water infrastructure, primarily in service of lead and copper rule revisions. Now, as we talked about, those folks and systems who will secure the funding are probably going to have their inventories in better shape. They're going to have their data sources documented. They're going to be able to tell a compelling story with regard to how these different water infrastructure projects will have a positive impact on certain disadvantaged or underserved members of their community. Funding is available now, but it won't be forever. So start yeah. as soon as possible, gathering data, getting an inventory, getting that inventory to a place that you can then start taking it to the, your primary agency, because they're ultimately the drinking water state revolving fund, clean water state revolving fund in your respective states the vast majority of the funds are going to be funneling through those entities. They are stewards of your system in your state. So ask questions to them, have conversations with them about different projects you're trying to fund. And if you're a smaller or under-resourced system who maybe doesn't have, feels like you don't have the voice or the ability to engage most eloquently with your primary agency, leverage your membership in your rural water association to advocate on your behalf, to be that voice, to be that megaphone 
and ultimately leverage those resources as well, the network effect to be able to make sure that your project or projects get the funding that they need. Yeah, this is so overwhelming, but you know, your neighbor is doing this too. And you know, the, the city over or the city across the state, like everyone is going through this. This isn't just a you thing. Right. So, you know, like you said, network, learn about lessons learned and become friends with your state and federal agency programs. Get to know them. You know, don't tick them off at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take, take, take the opportunity to, to start some new conversations or revitalize some ones that have gone dormant. This is, like you said, no one is, is exempt in many ways from this, uh, from a system standpoint. So I always say in the shadow of this law... Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a good thing as we try to identify and solve this issue. It opens the door for us to redefine what it means to collaborate and partner and, and solve together. And I, I think it's important that we, we, we take that, that opportunity or that approach. And it all starts with, like you said, just kind of sitting down, having those conversations, getting with your peers and your colleagues and, 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 and so forth and putting the boots on and getting to work and getting it done. Yeah. Once again, we want to remind all of our listeners that it is really imperative that your utility leaders talk with and consult with state and local officials. They're the ones who are going to be able to give you the final numbers that you need regarding compliance and planning. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Marcus and Lil, I thank you so much for joining us today. I have really enjoyed talking about LCRR. It's a heavy topic, I think sometimes, and there's so much more that could be discussed about it. And for our listeners, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact 120 Water directly. Uh, their contact Contact information will be in the show notes. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Heather. It, it has been fun, um, <laughs> which, which trust me, I don't, we don't get a lot of people saying, man, that was just such a great, I had so much fun learning about LCR, but um, <laughs> we do have to find a way to, to communicate and talk about this and uh, a, a method that, you know, can connect with people. And we appreciate the opportunity to come here and do so today and all that you do for your listeners and, and, and the industry as well. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. Before you leave though, we've got a little bit more fun. Oh, yes. Because we've got the Wanda's Water tidbit. So this is the part of the show where I dedicate it to my mom, Wanda, who sends me articles, a bit of trivia. And maybe after LCRR comes out in our community, I'll get even more. But this is a part of the podcast in which we share something that we find that's unusual and sometimes even brilliant about water. And today I want to cover okra. And I mean, yes, the, the vegetable and <laughs> how it can be used to clean up water. For those who haven't ever had okra before, I've been trying to think of a, a really good description, but I'm like, it's like a green pod vegetable and it has that slimy interior with the little seeds in it. Yeah. Like, is, is that a good, accurate description, you guys? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I was uh, when I read this and I saw this, I was like, "How would you describe okra?" Yeah, Marcus, do you have a do you have a, a way to describe how you would describe it? I know you you enjoy it. Think about a slug that is moving slowly <laughs> across the concrete, and that slime behind is kind of the, the texture of it. However, it's like one of the most fantastic, tasty, and versatile vegetables you can eat, uh, whether it's fried or in a in a stew. It is wonderful. Yeah, and I love it pan fried with cornmeal. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, you know, the low fat way. Cause I have a Southern mama, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm never gonna get that slug out of my head. But <laughs> Dr. Uh, Rajani Srinivasan, I really hope I didn't slaughter her name too bad of Tarleton state university, led a study to examine how like this, this goo, this stickiness from okra and other plants can help remove microplastics from water. It's fascinating. Oh yeah. And, and typically, you know, we remove microplastics from water using one or two processes. We float them, capture them, 
or we bind them with flocculants and then settle it out for removal. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, is many of our flocculants we're using today are polymers or plastic derivatives. And so overall that kind of contributes to that plastic sent out in the waste solids. And she wanted to find a non-toxic sustainable substance that would work instead. And so she researched several different plants, such as tamarind, aloe vera, cactus, and okra. And, and as I went through her list, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've had all of them. All right. <laughs> and I, I actually enjoyed all, but maybe the cactus I had. It's an acquired taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one. Uh. But what that sticky goo is, is natural polysaccharides that bind with the small microplastic particles and individually and in combination is what she researches. How do these all work together? What is the best combination here or there? And what she found out was that the polysaccharides from okra and fenugreek were the best for removing microplastics from ocean water. So that saline, I know, I'm like, I don't know that I would ever have thought of that. What a fantastic study. And I love that okra and tamarind work best for freshwater. Right. So, you know, okra is key here, people. Plant plant power (laughs) all day long. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I just love the way of thinking outside the box and using a natural sustainable product. Well, in these times that we are, we find ourselves in, uh, we need solutions beyond traditional means. And it is fun to think outside and solve outside of that traditional box. And that study and wonderfully sent from your mother is, is a, is a great, great example. <laughs> That's fantastic. And know, Marcus, so- thank you for the slug reference that that will be with me forever. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to take that slug back to my mom. She's be like, oh yeah. Uh. <laughs> but it really is tastier than it, than it sounds. It is, um, it is. It is delicious and versatile and wonderful. Yeah. There you go. Marcus, a little thank you again for joining us today, uh, for discussing the tidbit, for discussing LCRR. And for any of our listeners, if you have questions, like I said, please feel free to contact 120 Water directly. Their contact information will be in the show notes. And thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, Heather. We appreciate it. Marcus, as always, it's wonderful to to chat about this with you. And um, we'll talk to you both soon. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.